The sermon text this morning is 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You've probably heard of the Veteran Missions Organization, Operation Mobilization. Uh, They are well known for their ship, the Logos, that distributes Bibles and thousands of Christian books all over the world, ports all over the world. They've been doing this since the 70s. A very fruitful ministry. Millions of people have gone aboard this ship, heard the gospel. Um, Incredible ministry. But for decades, next to zero missionary activity could take place in the country of Albania. Albania is a little country along the Adriatic Sea, just north of Greece. Uh, It was once ruled by an extremely harsh communist regime. Uh, They famously declared in 1967 that Albania was the world's first atheist state. They banned all religion, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Muslim, all of it gone, property confiscated. Of course, there was not a single Protestant church in the country. The government cut the people off from the rest of the world. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, uh, the people of Albania didn't even find out until years later. Very isolated country. You, you could not get in and you could not get out. Well, sometime during this period, the Lagos ship comes sailing up the Adriatic Sea. They can see the Albanian coast there in the distance. And they know we can't reach those people. We, we, we just can't pull up in one of the harbors and drop anchor. It's not going to happen. So they come up with a plan. They, they, they put thousands of Bibles into little floating Ziploc bags and cast them into the sea hoping that the currents are going to take them to the coast. Fast forward several years, the uh, communist government falls, the country opens up, Protestant missionaries go in, groups like uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, they hit the beaches, they start doing evangelism, and guess what? They're meeting believers. I ask them, how did you become a Christian? What has it been, like 40 years under this dictator? You have been cut off from the world. And they said, we were walking along the beach one day and these bags floated up with a book inside. And so we picked it up, we took it home, we read it, and we became Christians. Behold the power and authority of God's word. It will not be shackled. Today there are 160 evangelical churches in Albania. The the, the church has skyrocketed in growth. Thousands of new believers Charles Spurgeon said, I defend the word of God the same way I defend a lion. I let it out of the cage. You don't have to defend a lion. You just let him loose. So this month, we celebrate a great unleashing of the word of God in the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation when believers in the Lord Jesus Christ protested the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and sought to bring about a recovery of the gospel under the leadership of men like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. We call these men reformers because they wanted the existing church of the day to to reform, to to be shaped or formed as before. 
they were simply following Jude verse 3. They were contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So they, were, they weren't inventing bold new ideas. They were simply calling for a return to some glorious old ideas. Fundamentally, the Reformation was about the recovery of the gospel. That's why Martin Luther had to stand trial at the Diet of Worms. Sounds strange if you've never heard of that before, Diet of Worms. Worms is a city in Germany. Diet is just an official religious assembly. But there he is. His life was on the line because of the doctrine of justification by faith. Luther's basic question was, how can I be saved? How can I be made right with God? Luther discovered in the scriptures that the righteous will live by faith. And he, and he writes here, I, here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. The Bible teaches that we are declared righteous in God's sight, forgiven of our sin by trusting in the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not by what we do. Theologians have called the dispute over this doctrine the material cause of the Reformation. It was the the actual substance of the dispute. It was the material cause. But what's looming there in the background as Luther stood trial is really the dispute over biblical authority. The Reformers were convinced that people are made right with God by faith alone, not by works. But who says? Okay, who says? By, By what authority could they claim this? By the authority of the Scriptures. The scriptures alone, sola scriptura. So that's the doctrine we'll look at today as part of our sermon series this month, uh, walking through the five solas of the Reformation. In a couple weeks, we'll cover sola fide, uh, by faith alone. And as I said, the battle over that doctrine was the material cause of the Reformation. But sola scriptura, scripture alone, that was the formal cause of the Reformation. And it changed the world. So unpacking this doctrine is our task this morning. Number one, uh, we'll look first at the church's understanding of the authority of Scripture before the Reformation. I'll then explain the recovery of this doctrine in the Reformation. And uh, lastly, we'll look at some implications for us today. As Tom explained last week, the Reformation came at a dark time. Uh, John Calvin writes, The light of divine truth had been extinguished. The Word of God buried the virtue of Christ left in profound oblivion and the pastoral office subverted. But you know, it had not always been this way. For the first thousand years uh, of church history there uh, since Christ, and really more than that, uh, the church affirmed the supreme authority of Scripture. But what do I mean by the authority of Scripture? Wayne Grudem offers a wonderful definition. He writes, The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. To believe and obey the Bible is to believe and obey God. I'm not saying that the Bible is God. But, but I am saying that the words of the Bible are God's words. The authority of the word of God is bound up in the authority of God himself. And this is what the Bible claims for itself. And you see this hundreds of times in the Old Testament. That little line, thus says the Lord. 
the original audience would have immediately recognized this as being identical to the phrase, thus says the king. So when a king or a representative of that king issued an edict, beginning with that phrase, boy, you follow whatever it comes after that. You, you obey it. There's, there's no questioning it. There's no challenging it. So when the prophet said, thus says the Lord, they are claiming to be messengers from the king of kings, God himself. The words they spoke were the authoritative words of God. And the early church was not confused about this. Justin Martyr, who was born in the year 100, how about that, born in the year 100, he said that scripture demands to be believed for its own nobility and for the confidence due to him who sends it. Now the word of truth is sent from God. For being sent with authority, it were not fit that it should be required to produce proof of what is said, since neither is there any proof beyond itself, which is God. So Justin Martyr is unashamedly saying that you can trust the Bible because the words of the Bible are the words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, what Emily read this morning, all scripture is breathed out by God. God is the author of scripture. The Bible's words are God's words. Some of you Bible scholars out there might be thinking of Philemon 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Or John 21, 24, John writes, this is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. So which is it? Did, did God write the Bible or did man write the Bible? 2 Peter 1, 21 helps us out here. Peter writes, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So hold that phrase in your head. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the origin of Scripture is not in man, but in God. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Yet it does say that men spoke. They, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we read the Bible, it's clear that, that God did not overpower the, the human author's personalities, right? You, Peter sounds different from Paul, who sounds different from Luke, who sounds different from John. Uh, they all have their own unique style and content. It's not like they, they went into a trance or something and they, they found their hand involuntarily moving, you know, and they woke, wake up and, look what I wrote, wow. Not like that. No, the human authors of Scripture used their own words, but those words were precisely what God wanted them to write. So we would say that Scripture has a dual authorship, both human and and divine, uh, but God is superintending the entire process. God is the ultimate source for every word of Scripture. So we can say the Bible's words are God's words. And the, the human authors of the Bible, they understood this. There are dozens and dozens of examples. When Matthew cites Isaiah's words, this is Matthew one twenty two. he writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So he's citing Isaiah, but he says the Lord spoke it. Or Peter in Acts chapter 2, he says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares. And he goes on. He inserts that God declares, which is not in the original text where, that Joel wrote. But Peter attributes to God words written by Joel. And as Peter is preaching there, he's saying God is saying this right now. The Bible's words are God's words. 
And we're not just talking about the Old Testament here. Very early on, the New Testament writings were being accepted as the Word of God as well. Peter was well aware of the letters of Paul. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Did you catch that? Peter understood Paul's letters to be God's written words, on par with the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and he begins the sentence with, for the scripture says. So Paul is saying that Luke's writing is part of the canon of scripture. And if you just take note, if you just read the New Testament and just take a step back and look at Jesus' view of Scripture, uh, how he viewed the authority of Scripture. John 10, 35, he says, the Scripture cannot be broken. In John 17, 17, Jesus is praying and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Note that he uses the noun there, not the adjective. He doesn't say your word is true as if it conforms to some other standard of truth. No, he says your word is truth. So the the scriptures are the very standard of truth itself. And you notice how Jesus fights the devil. How does he fight the devil? He quotes the Bible. It is written, it is written, it is written. That's what he does in every instance. Jesus assumed its authority. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible's words are God's words. And so the scriptures alone have supreme authority. And the church believed this for a thousand years. But towards the end of the Middle Ages, a different authority structure uh, began to emerge in the Roman Catholic Church in Of course, the Roman Catholic Church dominated all of Europe. And so this model became the standard. Uh, The theologian Greg Allison, he offers the illustration of a three-legged stool uh, to explain the Roman Catholic position that came about. So one leg is scripture. The other leg is tradition with a capital T. The other leg is the magisterium, which is the teaching office of the Catholic Church, which includes the Pope and the bishops in, in unity with him. So where can the infallible word of God be found? Well, the Roman Catholic Church said and and still says today that the word of God is found in the scriptures. They actually have a very high view of scripture. But the word of God can also be found, they say, in the unwritten oral tradition they believe they received from Christ and his apostles. And it can also be found in the official pronouncements of the Pope. So you can see how these very novel ideas that uh, were introduced in the 14th century would spark the Reformation that began in the 16th century. This understanding of authority is still very much the Catholic position today. Uh, The Catechism of the Catholic Church, published in 1995, section 82, reads, The Church, quote, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scripture alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And this is consistent with Catholic teaching going all the way back to the Council of Trent 500 years ago. 
So moving now to our second point, how did the reformers respond to this? Well, they said no. They said no. The authoritative word of God is not part of a three-legged stool. It is a single granite column called Scripture. The word sola becomes really important here. The Scriptures alone are the word of God. Only the Scriptures can bind the consciences of men and women. Not church tradition, not church councils, not the teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church. Our ultimate infallible authority for life and doctrine are the Scriptures. So let's think about that for a moment. The Scriptures alone. Can't I know certain things apart from the Scriptures? I mean, don't I know that God exists apart from the Scriptures? Well, I think we do. God has revealed Himself in nature through what has been made. Uh, This is what we call general revelation because it's available to people generally everywhere. It's more general in uh, content. We learn through what has been made that God is the creator and that he's powerful and we are accountable to him. We know these things almost innately, right? Uh, By observing the world God has made. What about the sense of right and wrong? Uh, Don't I know that apart from the scriptures? I I think we do. God has revealed himself in our own moral awareness. You can see this in every culture, in every age. So when the reformers cried sola scriptura, they were not denying general revelation. But they were insisting that there is only one written source of revelation. And that's the Bible. Theologians call the scriptures special revelation because only in the scriptures do we learn about God's redemptive plan. Only in the scriptures do we learn the truth about Jesus Christ. General revelation cannot teach us these things. You know, the sun and the moon and the stars and my own inner moral compass cannot teach me that God has provided a savior to rescue me from my sin. I need the scriptures for that. I need the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God to show me how I might be saved. Well, what about church confessions and creeds and councils? What about the writings of the church fathers? Uh, do they have any authority? The reformers argued that the scriptures alone are the inspired word of God. But that doesn't mean they arrogantly rejected the accumulated wisdom of church history. Uh, scripture is our ultimate authority, but the creeds and confessions of the church may be helpful summaries of scripture's teaching. So in this church, For example, we recite the Apostles' Creed after we take the the Lord's Supper. Is it the Word of God? No. Is it a faithful summary of what the Bible teaches? Yes. Uh, Christians have recited it corporately for centuries. Sola Scriptura is not about a me, God, and the Bible kind of individualism. Uh, for, For the sake of humility, we want to learn from the saints of old. So church tradition is an authority to be reckoned with, but but it's not an infallible authority. That's the key difference. Church tradition is capable of error. Scripture is not. So Protestants accept church tradition with a little t, but we reject the the Roman Catholic uh, position of tradition with a capital T. Only the Bible has the authority to bind the conscience. It's the final arbiter Uh, the final standard for what we should believe. Luther wrote, Since God wants no one to feel obligated to hold to anything not offered by Scripture, 
we should likewise reject all non-scriptural doctrine. This injunction can be used against the sacrilege of the Pope and the Papists who shamelessly declare that we must accept more than Scripture contains. Beware of this and be certain that all you need to accept is in Scripture. But concerning anything not found in Scripture, you should say, when did God ever make that statement? He even addressed the Pope himself. My dear Pope, you must not lord it over Scripture, nor must I or anybody else according to our own ideas. The devil take that attitude. We should rather allow Scripture to rule and master us. And we ourselves should not be the masters, according to our own mad heads, setting ourselves above Scripture. So my big point here, the Bible has supreme authority because the words of the Bible are God's words. That might sound like a circular argument to you, right? Uh, Scripture is God's word because it claims to be that. And we believe it's claims because Scripture is God's Word. And we believe it's God's Word because it claims to be that, you know. Well, hey, the Christian is not unique in this. Everybody appeal, appeals to some ultimate authority beyond which there is no proof, right? It, it might be your own inner feelings. It might be science. It might be some philosophical understanding. It might be some other holy book. People appeal to these things, sometimes even unconsciously, as their final standard for what to believe. So I mentioned other religious books, and there are other books that claim this kind of absolute authority. And I know what you might be thinking. How do we know which one is right? Well, in the actual experience of life, only the Bible makes sense of the world. The other options just lose their luster because the Bible, as you read it, you see... It plumbs the depths of the human heart. It shows us our wickedness and it shows us the way out through Christ. That line from from C.S. Lewis, you might remember, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So the Bible's message actually lines up with reality. And furthermore, it is utterly unique and beautiful and satisfying. At the very center of our faith is a man who died for his enemies. And he offers reconciliation with God by sheer grace, not by what we do. You are not going to find that anywhere. The problem is, sin clouds our vision. Sin is irrational, and so our thinking about God and his word and the world is also irrational. Sin has corrupted our minds, but it's also corrupted our hearts. You know, at bottom, we don't want to submit to the authority of Scripture. So ultimately, we come to believe that the Bible is the Word of God because of the inward work of the Holy Spirit. I'd wager that if I asked most of you why you trust the Bible, you'd say, because I've been born again. And that is a very good answer. Paul says in our passage today, verse 15, that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in this way, the the authority of the Bible is self-attesting. You can't prove it to anybody. Jonathan Edwards said that it's like being given a new sense that you didn't have before. It's like, being, it's like being able to, to taste the sweetness of chocolate cake for the first time. And uh, somebody might say, 
Friend, that's not sweet. That's no good. And you say, friend, I, I can't prove it to you, but, but yeah, it is. I know what sourness tastes like, and now I know what sweetness tastes like. God's word makes us wise. We, we come to our senses. We can finally see. It's like a pair of glasses you put on, and you can finally see yourself and the world and God and his word as they really are. Once you come to know Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible, you trust the Bible. I was reading John 5 the other day, and I was struck by verse 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. His voice is undeniable and irresistible. Lazarus, come out. Isn't that what happened in your life? It's what happened in my life. Jesus made me see his word. And it's, now it's precious to me. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So the reformers, they marshaled these kinds of arguments and they sparked a fire that spread throughout Europe and beyond, especially as they began to translate and distribute God's word in the common vernacular. You can't imagine the opposition they faced. Tom referenced some of that last week. Many of them went to their deaths getting the word of God into the hands of people. John Huss, 100 years prior, he sounded the alarm. He argued forcefully for the supremacy of Scripture over all human authority and even the Pope. He said, quote, For this truth, on account of its certitude, a man ought to risk his life. If you haven't read about John Huss, you really need to. Amazing man. Uh, he preached the gospel in the Czech language when everybody else was still in Latin. He was the Bishop of Prague. The poor people in his church, they couldn't read. So uh, you come into his church and he had this huge painting of the Pope sitting on his throne in all his glory, rings on his fingers, all these flowing robes, and uh, people kneeling at his feet, kissing his feet. Okay, Directly opposite that was another huge painting there in the church of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You walk in that church, you, you figured out real quick what this man is preaching. Well, Rome began to send in spies into his congregation. But John could spot them from the pulpit. He'd say, you there, in the cloak, write this down and take it back to Rome. Well, you can guess what happened. They, they killed him, burned him at the stake. I don't think that's going to happen to any of us. But I say, you know, we too, we are living in some tumultuous times. The culture we live in feels increasingly hostile to our Christian faith. And you and I are going to need an unflinching confidence in the authority of God's word. Otherwise, we are going to be swept away in the current. So this doctrine is a rock under our feet. It doesn't give you license to beat people over the head with the Bible. That, that's not what I'm saying. But it does put steel in your spine when the pressure comes. So lastly, I'd like to walk out some implications of the authority of Scripture in our own lives. Paul tells Timothy there in chapter 3, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And given the immediate context, a faithful application of that command would be to trust in the authority of Scripture. And Paul gives him three reasons, two of which we've already covered. Number one, we should believe in the authority of Scripture because the words of Scripture are God's words. 
That's verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We should believe in the authority of Scripture because of its self-attesting power to bring about conversion through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's verse 15. The Scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But he gives another reason. So put aside for a moment the the hostile post-Christian world out there. What's going on in your own home? Just start there. Paul says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Somebody might ask you, why do you trust the Bible? Why does it have such authority in your life? Well, one reason would be because it's what my mom taught me. And people might scoff at that. But no matter, uh, I mean, certainly there's more that needs to be said. Paul does say more. But still, Timothy can say one of the reasons he trusts the Bible is because of the godly example of others who also trusted the Bible. That's our third reason. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So evidently, those women, they, they taught Timothy the scriptures, and it was actually reflected in their lives. They had a sincere faith. And that left a powerful impression on Timothy. So Paul says, brother, remember who taught you these things. You did not learn the word of God from charlatans. You learned it from your mom and your grandma. And these are godly women with a sincere faith. That's nothing to laugh about. So there's a word here for parents and for Sunday school teachers, for anybody here in this church who has a ministry to children. We need to teach the Bible to our kids and our lives should reflect what we teach. There should be a one-to-one correspondence there. We should be reading and memorizing Scripture with our kids in hopes that one day, by the Spirit of God, it will blow up inside of them like latent dynamite. And coupled with instruction, they should be able to look back and recall the words work in our own lives and be able to say, you know, it was not a game to mom and dad. What, What they taught me, they really lived. That's a powerful formative influence in the life of a child. And if I could speak specifically to dads here, I, I know many of you feel like I, I've, I've blown it in this category. I, or at least I am, I am not where I need to be when it comes to this stuff. And I just want to say, brother, join the ranks of the weak. Okay, I am in the trenches with you. It's never too late to start or to start again. I, I had a professor who it was just beautiful. And one of the most ordinary things he could say, but it just hit me. If you feel like you've fallen behind in a particular spiritual discipline, just start again. The Lord's mercies are new every morning and God promises to give us his strength. So just start again. We can help each other with this. In fact, on October 21st and a couple Saturdays, we're having a men's morning. The topic is spiritually leading your family. Uh, We're gonna have a book available called Bible Reading with Your Kids. It's a great resource. We'll, We'll hear a couple talks. We'll have a panel discussion. It's gonna be a rich time and prayerfully life-changing for many of you. So please come join us. And it's not just for men with children still at home. Uh, All of us bear this responsibility in some form or another. And we can help each other with this. You know, Timothy had a faithful mentor in Paul. Uh, Paul clearly had himself in mind when he wrote, knowing from whom you learned it. 
Uh, You jump up to verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Paul lived what he taught. Even suffering could not dislodge Paul's trust in the scriptures. He was willing to give his life for it. That is persuasive. So so don't you want to be such an influence in the lives of other people? To, to hold out the word of God to people, to, for, for you, to be so governed by the word of God that it just spills out of your life and you offer it to people for their blessing in this life and their eternal good. Not, not just to offer therapeutic advice, but, but the authoritative word of God. That's what truly changes people. And that's... that's That's what the regular diet of preaching at Christ's Covenant Church is all about. The exposition of the Word of God. Because only the Word of God comes with the authority of God. John Calvin said, much of the preaching prior to the Reformation was filled with, quote, sweet stories, not unamusing speculations, and only a few expressions thrown in from the Word of God. Boy, if that's how you would begin to describe the preaching here at this church, you are under obligation to remove us. I mean, if all we're offering you is sweet stories, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, he's talking to the churches. He writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He holds the congregation responsible for the teaching they're receiving. A love for the word and the pew will safeguard the preaching of the word in the pulpit. And certainly it's the other way around as well. You know, we are unified in this task of guarding the authority of the word and making sure it's preached to God's people. So friends, God wrote a book. Do you read it? Do you ponder it? Do you linger over it? Do you underline it? Do you obey it? You see there, chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Profitable. You only have to gain. It will only do you good. Let it say what it says. Let, Let the word of God do its work on you. Take it into your life. Submit to it. You see in verse 16, the breadth of the word's work in our lives. We are ignorant, but God's word teaches us. We are misguided and foolish, but God's word corrects us. We are immature, but God's word trains us up to live righteously. Having saved you, God now intends to mature you through his word that you might be complete. That's verse 17. So God has been so gracious to give us his word. And this month we celebrate a glorious historical recovery of the authority of God's word. And with it, the recovery of the gospel of his son. So let's take a moment now to reflect on these things and and I'll close this after a minute.